Um, hey, good morning. My name's uh, Ross, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to add my welcome to Todd's welcome. Um, if you're here or if you're online, um, I'm so glad that you're with us. And we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. We've been looking at this letter that John is writing to these churches in Asia Minor. And um, it is at the, near the end of John's life. It's near the end of the first century of Christianity, and the world is changing and the church has undergone some, some changes, as it, as it does when um, one generation passes uh, this mantle of faith to the next generation. And so, John's writing into this. He's writing into these churches. And I'm going to um, just, I'm going to read the passage for us, and then we'll, we'll walk through it. There's two parts of the passage. The first part of the passage is he's going to talk to us about three kinds of Christians. At least that's the way that I take it. And then he's going to talk to us about three kinds of temptations. Three kinds of Christians, or three stages of your Christian life, and then three kinds of temptations that really, as it turns out, they are all um, part of the same. So, 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 12, and this is what John says. He says, I'm writing to you, little children... Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away with all of its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that you would take these words and you would, you'd open our hearts and so that by your Spirit we, we could hear your word this morning. We, we would be drawn to your Son. Father, we'd be changed pray you would, you would grow us this morning and tomorrow and Wednesday and three weeks from now, that, that Father, we'd, we'd more and more know what it is to abide in you and to be drawn to you. So make us sensitive to that, and we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, I, I really hadn't planned to start off this way, and I'll probably regret it here in just a little bit. I've got more than we can talk about, but I, I was reading this week, and I was reading one thing, and it led me to another thing, and led me to another thing, and through this sort of serendipitous process, I found myself reading um, a sermon uh, from Charles Spurgeon in 1861. 
And he starts the sermon off, um, and, and, and what he says in the sermon is he begins it by saying, hey, listen, a couple of weeks ago I preached on something, and I just want to acknowledge that it made everybody mad. And so what I'd like to do this morning, essentially what Spurgeon might paraphrase, is I want to double down. And I want to make the case again that what I said is true. Now, interestingly enough, in 1861, this is, he's preaching this towards the end of 1861. 1861, he, he, decide, he, he references, he, he, which was the, the spirit of the day. This is the way people were talking about 1861. There's never been a year like this. I mean, this... I mean, this year has been defined by nothing but, but tragedy and hardship and very much like a 2020 kind of year. This is what they were having. And the heels of, of what he's talking about is they had some sickness that had come in and they were worried it was going to, you know, they were going to, London was going to see another plague. 1861 is the year uh, Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated as president. 1861 is the year that the world is, is looking in on America as the Civil War is brewing and finally comes to fruition in August. 1861 is the year that um, the British railway system had its first um, accident. They had a, a train that came off the rails and hundreds were killed. It was a year that many significant world leaders died. And the church is, is mumbling and grumbling and, and trying to make sense of it, and, and um, they, they fall into what Spurgeon calls this superstition, a, a superstition of, of God's wrath being poured out upon, um, you know, the world. You know, they were blaming the Amtrak uh, or the, the British Railway um, uh, accident uh, because it happened on Sunday. And people were saying things like, well, that's what, well, you know, that's what happens when you, when you forsake the Lord's day and, and all kinds of things like that. They were speaking about God in, in ways that were more super, superstitious than they were faithful. And, and Spurgeon was, was worked up about it. This is what he said. Um, the whole sermon's great. You want it? Email me. I'll send it to you. But uh, th this is this is kind of the heart of it. <clears throat> and, and if I if you haven't if I if I need to draw the line for you here, this applies to us today. By the way, do you not know that the great transactions of providence? began near 6,000 years ago. Spurgeon, looking at the beginning of Genesis, believed that history, you know, man's history was 6,000 years. It, it began nearly 6,000 years ago, and you have only stepped into this world for 30 or 40 years and seen one actor on the stage, and you say you understand it. Then he says this, tush. You do not. You have only begun to know 
Only he knoweth the end from the beginning. Only he understands what are the great results and what is the great reason for which the world was made and for which he permits both good and evil to occur. Think not that you know the ways of God. It is to degrade providence and to bring God down to the level of men when you pretend that you can understand these calamities and find out the secret designs of wisdom. See, one of the things Spurgeon is saying, he's wanting to remind his congregation, is that, listen, it is less significant what is happening in the circumstances of the world and it is more significant what is taking place in the spiritual growth of the church and the believers. That, that, what, that what we want to turn our attention to is that we want, whether the circumstances are in our favor or not in our favor, whether we're in the midst of a pandemic or not a pandemic, whether whatever may blow or come in the news tomorrow, that, that we would be pressing into God and that we would be defined less by the circumstances going on in the world and more by the spiritual growth that is taking place in the life of this church, in the life of, of us as believers. Because at the end of the day, we, we trust that God has ordained all these days from the very beginning. It would be foolish of us to be people that claim to have all wisdom. We want to press in to what God is doing. Now listen, this is in many ways why John's writing this letter to these believers. It's, he's at the end of the first century of the, of the church. Really, he represents kind of the last of the old guard, if you will. All the other apostles, they've been martyred. The church is in its second and third generation, and he's, and he's writing to them, and he wants to encourage them. And listen, they've seen a lot of stuff. They, they watched or heard about, there were people that watched, you know, the Roman emperor Nero uh, martyr Paul. They knew Paul. Martyr Peter. They knew Peter. Domitian's probably the emperor at this time. The story goes. Uh, we don't have it. We don't have the biblical record of it. We have very early writing. The church fathers, the, those that knew John, wrote about it. That that he they try. He tried to martyr John. He tried to boil him alive, and he, he wouldn't die. And that freaked him out. So he exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. The, the, these believers were, were living under a, a regime that was very hostile, and it was only going to get worse. Christianity wasn't, wasn't filled with, with earthly prosperity at this time. The church, the church knew great poverty and great suffering. And, and, and John's writing, and he wants to encourage these believers, and they, because there were some believers that were coming along, and whether it was because their faith had become stale or, or whether it was because um, you know, they, they wanted more out of this thing uh, from a world standpoint than what they were receiving, they began to preach a different gospel that said, look, you're too focused on, on, on um, living a, uh, believing certain things and living a certain way, but I'm here to tell you all that will work itself out 
after you die, right now what we're pursuing is the best that we can get in this world. And John says, no, that's never what Christianity was about. It's not the way Jesus lived his life, and it's not what he's called us to. It's not what he's empowered us to. And, and so, he wants to encourage these believers. That, that's why there's, right here in the middle, it, it, if you've got your Bibles open, it, the, the text from verses 12 to verses 14, it looks like poetry, most likely, in, in your Bible. It's, it's set apart. It could be that it was, it was a song, it was meant to be a mnemonic, something that you, that you said in a certain way that helped you to remember it. it I'm writing to you, you notice, you know, I'm writing to you children, to you fathers, to you young men. He starts over again, I write to you children, fathers, young men. It says essentially the same thing in both of the stanzas. But he's writing to believers, I take it, at different stages of their spiritual growth, and he's writing to encourage them. Because right after this, verse 15, what we read about, don't be in love with the world, he's going to begin to give us some imperatives. He's going to begin to exhort us. He's going to, he's going to begin to tell us as believers things that we are to do and not to do. And he's going to do it in, in the way that only a, a grandfather that loves you loves you, will be able to say. So, so look with me real, real quick. I, I, th this is the way I want to take it. I want to take to the little children and then children, and then I want to look at the fathers, and then I want to look at the young men. And I'm, I'm just going to take them like that, and I'll be in verses 12 through 14, and you can, you can hang out with me there. Um, so John is writing about spiritual growth, and and I would say, right off the bat, there's something different between an, an immature Christian and a new Christian, an immature believer and a new believer. A, an immature believer is somebody that's been a believer for a while, but you haven't, you haven't grown up. You, there, um, you, you, you haven't continued to learn. You haven't made progress. And you, you haven't been motivated to do so. A new believer that stays a new believer for very long quickly becomes an immature believer. New Christian somebody that, listen, you don't know a ton, but you love the Lord, your intentions are good, you're making forward progress. Um, an immature believer we would expect to have, to have grown from where they started. Now, the word for children here, and I'll give you just quick nerdy, the word for children in verse 12 and the word for children at the end of verse 13 is they're different words in the Greek. The first one um, is um, a child that's born, um, uh, like a newborn infant. Um, could, could be that he's talking spiritually to all of the church, to all of the believers. Hey, all of you that are born again, here is what you know, your sins have been forgiven. This is what it means to be a Christian, to know that your sins are forgiven. Now, listen, a Christian is not somebody who's hoping they're forgiven. A Christian is someone who, who, who knows they're forgiven. They, 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 they have this. It's the radical, uh, permanent, complete claim that your sins are forgiven 
past tense and that you are certain of it. Notice the way that he says it, that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. His name, the name of Jesus, I take it to mean here. It, it, it's everything he is and everything that he's done. You, you don't believe that you're forgiven your sins on account of your repentance. You don't believe that you're forgiven your sins on account of the things that you're doing to make them right. You don't believe that you're forgiven based on just some general idea that God is love. You've been forgiven. You believe that you're forgiven, and you know that you've been forgiven on the value of what Jesus has done, who Jesus is and what he has done. All your eggs are in that basket. All of your hope is in Jesus. Little, little children, believers, you know your sins are forgiven. This is encouragement to them. You don't have to doubt that, believers. Well, then he picks them back up at the end of verse 13. He says, Children, you, you know the Father. I think he's writing to the new believers here. He's writing to those that are, that are spiritually new in the faith, that have come to understand that their sins are forgiven. And, and now they, they, they're taking the first steps. And in the first steps are you come to know the Father intimately, relationally. It's like, like a newborn child. That Listen, you, the child comes out of the womb, and, um, but then grows to understand and recognize who their parents are. Certainly, they recognize their parents' voice. They feel this familial bond, this sort of mysterious beyond what we know. But, but really, it's the, they, they, they come to know us. And, we, and we, we teach them how to talk about us, right? I mean, some of the first words children say are, are mama or dada. Or in the case of my son, ball. I believe the ball was his father, I think. But, I mean, there's nothing like it when, when this child that doesn't know anything, really probably from a speech standpoint, just mimicking things you said, but begins to identify you as their mom or their, or their dad. Listen, new believers, you're coming. You're coming to know the Father. You know him. You're going to grow in that knowledge more and more. Well, I'm going to take the next bit. I'm going to reverse the order a little bit. Let's talk to the young men. He says, young men, you've overcome evil. I take this to be those that are um, spiritually growing. They've, they've come into faith. They, they were new believers now. Now they're spiritually growing, and, 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 and one of the things that marks this, this time of maturing is the battles that you fight, the struggles that you 
have, the nature of their struggles. And he's going to address sort of this secret, the source of their, of their strength. And when he talks about the evil one, he's talking about, man, listen, we have an enemy. We have one called the devil. We have an evil one that has is, that is walked the earth and knows humanity and hates humanity and hates you specifically. He says, listen, to you that are maturing and you that find yourself in the struggle, you that are battling, I want you to know you've overcome. One, you've overcome because Jesus won the victory. The overcome is the word Nike. And you're overcoming. You're fighting a battle that's already been won, whether you feel like you're losing in the moment or not. You've overcome. Listen, overcoming Satan, overcoming your enemy is not the same thing as, as getting rid of sin. You're going to battle with sin your, life, your whole life. As you're maturing, you feel the rage of that battle all the more intensely. You know, it's part of like, it's part of preaching through 1 John. It's this real phenomenon. You know, you, John says these really hard things and, and, um, there are things that, that really the most sensitive and the maturing believers that are hearing it are the ones uh, that, that feel the warnings the most, right? You know, you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, if you don't forgive, God's not, your God in heaven's not going to forgive you. It's not the unregenerate, unbeliever, or disinterested believer that's hearing that and going, man, I must really be in trouble. No, it is the sensitive, growing believer that feels so acutely those words. Thanks, man. I knew I was losing. I knew, I knew I was. But that's not why John's writing. John's writing to encourage you. Listen, you've overcome. You are overcoming. You have an enemy who's a liar who wants nothing more than for you to feel accused and deceived. He wants nothing more than to, than to prod you and to tempt you and, and use all the available power the world-centered system offers him to draw you away from your Savior. Listen, Satan can't take away your salvation. He will settle for keeping you in spiritual infancy your whole life. Now notice when you get to the end um, of, uh, of 14, he, he says to the young men again, young men, you're strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you've overcome the evil one. The only way to overcome Satan, the only way to overcome the evil one in your life, really the only way to overcome these temptations that he's going to speak about in the next few verses is that, is that you're cultivating your need for God's Word. So you can't experience the strength that you need for the battle that you're in until you cultivate a need for the Word of God. And it's 
and it's reading it. And it's not reading it in a way that checks it off your list. It's reading it in a way that you're wanting to continue to know who God is, the author of this. God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. As this word abides in you, as you go to this word, as you further understand who God is, um, you, you find yourself not only growing spiritually, you find yourself growing stronger. It, it's, it's coming to understand what God has said about sin. It's coming to understand what God has said about his redemptive plan to take a sinful man and to bring them to the place of salvation. It's to understand what it means to be justified before God, reconciled to him because of the work of Christ. And you continue to grow in your understanding. You continue to grow in that understanding by growing in God's Word. You do not grow as a believer. You do not mature as a believer apart from the Word of God in you. You, you, will, you will remain in a spiritual infant. You'll be fit to be dropped off at the nursery. I want to encourage you. That, listen, and some of you say, well, listen, I've tried that. I mean, I don't know what to do. Maybe, maybe something's not working in me. Maybe something's defective. I, I open the Bible. It's not interesting to me. I can't find, you know, I fall asleep when I read it. And I say, okay, I, I get all that. One of the ways to begin is to, is to pick a book, and you can read through it and make a study of it. Another way to begin is to say, listen, I want to understand what the Bible says about this thing. And, and, then, and then begin to read it. Begin to look, look at, the, at the back of your Bible. The back of your Bible has what's called a concordance. It's got all these words in it. And it gives you places to, to start. And then you just follow that through the Bible. You begin to learn and understand what the Bible says. And I'm telling you, there's nothing that will ignite an excitement in you when firsthand you begin reading and understanding what God's Word says about something. In fact, listen, I, you'll sit there and you'll think, I can't believe it. I've never seen this before. I wonder if anybody's ever seen this before. Yes, probably they have, and that's a, it's okay, but you've... You've seen it for yourself for the first time. Listen, that'll keep you going back and back and back and back. And in our Bible studies and in our life groups and in our times together, we, we ought to come away feeling more energized to be in God's Word. If, if we're not, then we need to evaluate what it is that we're, that we're doing together. Listen, my whole goal on a Sunday morning or any time that I've got the Bible open and somebody's listening to me teach, my, my goal is not that you'd come up afterwards and go, look, man, that was a really great sermon. It's so awesome. And I took so many notes. And I think, oh, that's, that's great. Thank you. You're kind. But really, the, my goal, and, and every now and then somebody will say it, so listen, I cannot wait to get home this afternoon and read that again. I cannot wait to get home this afternoon and read more of it. That's, that somehow that is stirred in you to want to, to draw you, to drive you to God's Word, that you would increasingly feel your need 
For God's word is the source of your strength. Let's talk about the, the fathers. You know him who is from the beginning, he says. I think as you're maturing in your spiritual life, you get excited, and you're, you're, you're pulling your biblical understanding and your, your knowledge of doctrine, theology, all those things begin to come together. You begin to see things more clearly. It's, it's, it's exciting. The, 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 those that, that have that are moved into a, a maturity in our body. What comes with that is still a, a continued need for God's Word, but I think what marks that is this sense of, of rest and tranquility and depth of character because you know Him who is from the beginning. So you realize in the, in the learning about Him and putting these things together and you're and your mind being sharpened and, and transformed, renewed, you know, as Paul talks about it in Romans 12, you, you begin to realize, not only do I know about him and am amazed at what he has revealed about himself and how the Spirit works when I read his word, you, you come to rest and realize, I, I actually I know him. And, I'm, and, the, and you know you know him because... You begin to see things through God's eyes because the Word of God abides in you. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, a Christian is spiritually mature when he sees everything from God's viewpoint. All right, we'll do this. I'll ask for an. I feel like I should ask for an airplane or something. Um, okay, I'm. Move on. Do you get this spiritual growth? The question is, where are you? Do you know where you are? Are you a new believer? I'm so glad you're here, man. This place, a growing, healthy church, needs to be filled with new believers. Are you a growing, maturing believer? Or have you stalled out somewhere along the way? Now, we, we need you to be maturing. There's a fight to be fought. And you get to find it as one who's already overcome. Are you a mature believer? You have a wisdom and a tranquility and a peace about you. We desperately need 
and the life of this body. All right, so, so look at quickly, verses 17, 15 through 17. And if I don't get all the way, if I don't say everything I want to say, it's fine. I'll leave it and we'll, I'll pick it up next week. But he says, he says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. As John talks about the world, he's talking about um, the, this, this moral order that is in rebellion against God. So listen, God so loves the world and, 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 is, and is working redemptively in the history of the world to shine a light on his son Jesus so that mankind, individuals, would come to a saving faith of Jesus. God is about restoring what has been lost through his son Jesus. This is true. But when it comes to the world, this is not something weird to love in a way that, that, that marks our identity. See, how we typically love the world is not necessarily through God's eyes. It's a self-seeking love that wants to taste all that the world has. And John says, I don't want you to do that. And yet the truth is, if we're not, if we're not honest, that's our natural condition. That's what we inherited from our first father and mother who were placed in a garden and through temptation of the evil one, stepped out of God's desire and began to desire the things of the world, beginning with the, the fruit. The temptation came to satisfy their longing apart from God. They should have walked away, but they didn't. So later that Paul will define this as the sin we inherited. Um, the sin actually works itself out like this. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith, that's what sin is. It's more than just the good things you do or the bad things you do. It's everything in your life that is apart from faith. It, it's seeking to identify yourself apart from God, to, to not think of yourself as in Christ, but to think of your, you know, it's this, it's this difference of, of thinking them, of themselves as related to God to thinking of themselves as themselves. When they ate the fruit, the world was cosmically shifted. We inherited sin. The world was broken. And it's realizing that is our, that is our natural bent. Left to ourselves, that is the direction we go. You know, one of the Interesting things, when I worked for Young Life, um, Johnny can attest to this. Hopefully, Johnny, I don't say it in a way that's not true, but we would take high school kids to camp in the summer. You'd spend the year or years with them. You would develop a relationship so that when you're inviting somebody to go to camp with you, you're taking a high school, not just a high school student, you're taking a high school friend with you. And you go get away from everything else and you go spend a week there and they show up at this camp. And this camp is like, it's the closest thing to paradise on earth most of these high school friends have ever seen. And it's amazing. I mean, the food is great and the entertainment is top notch and it's, it's energy is unparalleled and it's 
positive and it's, it's, it's wonderful. In fact, by the end of it, you tell a kid, listen, I, I guarantee you this will be the greatest week of your life. It's not the greatest week of your life. I'll give you your money back. I never had to give anybody's money back. And I hear a speaker during the week that's winsome and relatable and he's speaking God's truth that this thing happens, this thing that happens every week at a young life camp. It usually happens on a Thursday morning after they've been there a little while and they've heard about who God is and they've heard about his son Jesus and they've heard about this possibility that we, we could be rightly related to God. Thursday morning, the hammer drops and it's called the sin talk. And the sin talk is where, where the high school kid is now confronted with the problem that keeps them from being rightly related to God. And that's sin. And it's not, it, it's sin universal. It's sin inherited. And it is sin practical and specific to their life. And there's nothing they can do about it. And sometimes the speaker will just leave a high school kid hanging right there. 24 hours, 36 hours until they're able to tell them the good news that Jesus took that sin and died for them. But what's amazing is that 36 hours is so restless and chaotic and stuff gets broken at camp and fights start and because kids are working out this reality of what it means to be lost. That is what the world offers you is the echoes and reminders of your lostness. And John says, don't love the world. Because if you love the world, the love of God's not in you. He wants them to be so encouraged. You don't want that which is by nature the enemy to occupy all of your affections. Desire, desire, pride, to covet what we don't have, to be proud of what we do have, to desire things or people or status above God, to try to satisfy ourselves with that that isn't. God. It's the desire to try to meet your own needs. It's the desire to try to justify your own existence. To take something that's good and to make it the object of your ultimate desire, that's to make an idol. That's, that's to sin. John says, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do it because the world is passing away along with all of us. It's not permanent. In fact, the truth is, at the core, this, this world system that the enemy has orchestrated and uses against you every day, the reality is it's an illusion. It's passing away. 
you're reaching on to something that's fleeting when you were reborn to abide with God forever. can't rescue ourselves or justify ourselves or seek significance, find significance anyway, and anything apart from the significance that God has bestowed upon us. We've got to reckon in our minds, our lives, what Christ has done for us. We'll talk more about it, but we also have to rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Leaning in to the ways that God stirs us and to know the ways God stirs us. We have to find ourselves bowed before him. The, the moments where we, we say no to everything else and we, and we seek to listen to God. Well, there's lots to say. Jesus went through those temptations. You can read about him in Luke 4. Went through every one of those temptations. Satan tempts him with every single one of those. Jesus answers every single time with the very words of God. It's difficult for us to see, recognize what God's doing, who, who we're becoming as believers part of how he's designed it. He wants us to mature, wants us to grow into our understanding of him to maturity. You, you have a new identity that's becoming more real all the time, real to you. We must begin by first knowing, believing, and what we're believing about God is what ends up making us, defining us in our experience now. God is doing a work by His Spirit in us. We want to we dial into that. We want to connect to what God's doing. Are you growing? Are you maturing? John wants you to. He's encouraging you to. So that the circumstances of the world that are going on right now isn't what's defining us. It's what God's doing in us to shape us like his son. Here's what I want to do. I want us to end this morning with communion. And um, it, Did everybody have one of these? It, little, uh, what Fritz calls communion MREs. I wasn't here the last time we did it, and so Todd gave me a little tutorial this morning. Um, there are two flaps to peel back. There's a clear flap on the top. You peel that back, and you can grab your wafer. And then in a minute, when we're ready, we'll peel the bigger one back, and we'll have the juice. But for now, if you just kind of hold these two... I want to talk to you about the symbolism. The reason, Jesus is the one that introduced the symbolism, and he introduced the symbolism in the midst of a Passover meal, and what he said to his disciples, well, I want you, this bread, it represents my body, my life. 
God made flesh. And only, the only way you can be saved is that God became flesh, dwelt amongst the that I took on flesh, not only to take on your flesh, but I took on all of your sin. I took on all of your guilt. That the ways humanity has fallen and become skewed and separated from God, I took all that on to myself. What you owe, I counted it towards me. It became my debt. And in this cup is my blood. And I'll die. I will, I will die your death. I will pay your penalty. And I'll do that with my death. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. And if you'll believe that I can take your sin and your debt, and your rebellion, and your guilt, and your you believe I can take that, and you trust me for that, and trust that I died with it, so you, you don't have to, and I endured the wrath of God, so you don't have to, then by faith, you're saved, and clothed with my righteousness, Jesus says, clothed with my glory, I'm going to remake you, you You'll be born again, a new creation. This is what we remember this morning. The life and the death of the resurrected Jesus. And Paul says that we'll eat and drink in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ until he returns. We're reminded that he's coming again for us. So if you would, let's take a few minutes. We'll take 90 seconds. I want us to bow our heads. I want us to ask the Spirit of God if there's sin in our life that he convict us of that so that we, we can confess that, we can restore any fellowship that's lost. This morning, if you're not a believer, you can become a believer right here where you sit. If you're not a believer, I'd ask you to just watch us do this and ask God to make real to you the gospel of his son. Bless the Lord.